Hello, and welcome to Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and interviews. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Today's episode is going to cover a lot of quantum computing fundamentals, and even if you think you know the basics, stay tuned. You might just learn something new. In this episode, we'll look at how cryptography works currently, how quantum computing will break all of that, and how worried we should all be, and what can be done to counteract this. The TLDR is, we're all doomed, eventually. So, the first question to talk about is, how does cryptography work now? We need to talk about this, because if you don't understand how cryptography works now, then you can't understand how it will be broken by quantum computers, and then you can't understand why in the world do we need to worry about quantum-safe encryption. So... We're going to start with how quantum, or sorry, how regular cryptography works currently. What you have is a lot of times you've got integer factoring, discrete logarithms, or elliptic curve calculations. I'm going to hit integer factoring and discrete logarithms a little bit. Um, elliptic curve cal- calculations work in a similar way, but it's different, and I don't quite understand it well enough to explain it, and so I'm not even going to attempt that. So, integer factoring, which is common in RSA. No, RSA uses elliptic curve. Sorry. Um, Integer factoring is the idea that if I have two really big prime numbers and I multiply them together to get another really big number, the only numbers that can divide into that that big number are the two primes, right? Because those don't have any factors of their own. But if I give you that really big number, it's hard to find what the, uh, the two numbers that I multiplied together. So let's take a simple example. If I say 21, you probably know already that the two prime numbers I multiplied together are 3 and 7. But if you're a computer, you have to go through every single number, multiply them together, and see if that worked. So 1 and 1, that's not 21. 1 times... 3, also not 21, 1 times 5, also not 21, 1 times 7, 1 times 11, 1 times 13, so on and so forth, until you get to 3 times 7. Um, That means, worst case scenario, this is O of n squared, if you're familiar with big O notation, which means, you know, and we're not talking about numbers like 21 here. The actual integer factoring that you use in real world is much larger. We're talking 2048 bits long. Um, I'm just using a small toy example to get the idea across. So yeah, it's ridiculously hard. Um, In order to break um, RSA 2048 with all of the computers in the world working on breaking it, it would take, you know, thousands of years. So it's just not not a human timescale and not something we have to worry about yet. Um, Same sort of idea with discrete logarithms. It's hard to compute log base b of a is equal to k because, again, you have um, O of n squared, different possible values you can be looking for. So, um, of course, with discrete logarithms, there are some cases that are known and easy, but if you use carefully chosen subgroups of integers, there are no efficient known classical solutions. So, uh, and then elliptic curves, like I said, work in a similar way. 
where it's really easy to do one thing, like multiply two numbers together. Or if you have a big number, divide it by a smaller number to get another smaller number, and then you've, you know all of the secrets. Um, but it's really hard if you just have one piece of information to reverse it. So quantum computing will crack all of that with Shor's algorithm. And I'm going to oversimplify Shor's algorithm here. Uh, yell at me in the comments, <laughs> um, because I, I do want to do a episode specifically on Shor's algorithm at some point in the future. But suffice it to say, we use quantum weirdness to get the factors of a number much faster than would be possible with a classical algorithm. And it, it's not just factors of a number. It's also, you can use it for discrete logarithms. You can also use it for um, elliptic curve calculations. There, uh, basically every way that we typically encrypt our data now is vulnerable to Shor's algorithm. So what are the implications of this? What exactly is the problem if encryption is cracked? Well, first of all, probably the biggest problem, Bitcoin is doomed. Um, you know how much we nerds love our Bitcoin. Bitcoin and blockchain, in general, work based on what's called proof of work. Proof of work means we have this problem that we want you to solve. The, if you solve it, you've proven that you've done work. You're not just you know, toying around and adding random stuff to the ledger. Um, uh, the ledger is the, the, the record of blocks that have been added to the blockchain. Anyhow, um, so yeah, without getting into the details too much, to add one of these blocks to the ledger, a computer needs to find a number that when it is cryptographically hashed with all of the previous blocks gives you a number between 1 and 4 billion. Probably more details than needed, but basically we have, we, we have a, cryptography, a cryptography problem that's, you know, big enough that it's not instantaneous for a computer, but small enough that it can be solved in about 7 to 10 minutes. Um, and the only way to do this currently is to guess and check all or almost all of the numbers. When you're doing that, you're proving that you're doing the work. Um, that's what Bitcoin miners do. If you've ever heard that term, Bitcoin miner or cryptocurrency miner, that's they're, they're doing this proof of work. And when you do the proof of work, you get the reward of a certain number of Bitcoin. So if you want to control the entire ledger, you just need to have greater than 51% of the processing power, right? Because if you have greater than 51% of the processing power, that means that every single time you are the one adding a new block to the ledger. Um, and that allows you to do crazy things like double spend Bitcoin, get every new Bitcoin that's created. But currently that's really hard to do because all of the Bitcoin miners the computers that are trying to solve these problems create a global computer that's bigger than the biggest supercomputer. There's more processing, pow more processing power going into uh, cryptocurrency mining than there is going into any other single, single application, as far as I know. But quantum computers, like, their thing is finding numbers. They really like finding unknowns. And if you have a quantum computer that's better at solving these specific problems than just 51% of the rest of the computers, you control the entirety of Bitcoin. It, admittedly, I'm a little fuzzy in this area. Let me know if there's something here I missed or got wrong entirely, but that's pretty much why Bitcoin is doomed. 
And it's not just Bitcoin. That's sort of a fun example to talk about. But everything from government secrets to your bank information is encrypted, signed, and sent with quantum crackable encryption. If you think you have something out there on the internet that is safe, it is not safe from quantum computers. It is for now. And that actually brings me to our next point. How hard is it to get here? Like, how soon do we need to be worrying about, well, all of your bank information being stolen, government secrets being leaked? So the answer is, while being as vague as possible, it's pretty hard. Uh, and that's all we get. Thanks for listening. I've been Ethan Hansen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, the most common form of RSA encryption and the recommended form is 2048-bit. What that means is that the keys used for RSA encryption, those numbers that we multiply together, actually I believe RSA yeah, uses elliptic curves. Anyhow, the keys are 2048 bits long, very big numbers. Question is, how many qubits are needed to factor this with Shor's algorithm? And I looked around on the internet for this for a while, and I could not find a single answer that people agreed on. Estimates ranged everywhere from 4,000 to 20 million qubits. And to make matters worse, none of the sources I looked at for the number of qubits specified whether their estimate was for the number of, uh, whether it was for logical or physical qubits. So, in either case, we are nowhere near even 1,000 qubits, logical or otherwise. The largest chip that exists right now is Google's bristlecone chip, which has 72 qubits, at least the biggest chip that we know of. So we're nowhere near factoring standard RSA encryption. Um, and so the other thing that I looked at is when will we be anywhere near factoring RSA encryption? And uh, again, the sources could not agree. Um, best case scenario, we could reach the point of, well, best case scenario, if you're the person trying to factor it. Worst case scenario, if you're the one trying to keep your bank from, you know, being leaked to the entire internet. Uh, so, best case scenario, we could reach the point of factoring 2048-bit RSA with Shor's algorithm in about 15 years. On the high estimate, they estimated much longer than that. Um, but again, it ranged everywhere from... 50 years to 100 years. I decided, since everyone is you know, disagreeing on this, I figured I'd also disagree on this, throw my hat in the ring, um, and I used a polynomial regression on the number of qubits in the record holder quantum computers in the past, and that suggests that the time frame we're looking at looks more like 250 years in the future. And that's not error-corrected qubits, that's, that's, uh, that's physical, not logical qubits. In other words, it's going to be a while. No matter who you're listening to, it's you know 15 years to 250 years. You don't have to worry about it right now. But if you are encrypting your information right now with a quantum crackable encryption, at some point in the future, that will be pretty much publicly available, um, or at least available to who's able to do it. Which brings us to our next point, who will be able to do it? Well, of course, you're going to have governments and large companies first. Um, you know, large companies like Google, who already has Bristlecone, IBM, and government, um, well, actually, government agencies work with these contractors to bring about quantum computing. And, you know, depending on who you ask, 
everyone will eventually be able to do this. And the, the issue is that we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. There's a quote that's, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. With that, I, re I really like that quote. Um, but if you look back at history, you have crazy advances like GPS and satellite navigation that started as military applications. It was just military and military contractors that had access to these things. And now you've got GPS in your phone. Um, before you even had a phone, you probably had a GPS or sat-nav that was on your dashboard that you could have take you places. I mean, even computers in general, right? It started as a way to crack the Enigma machine. It was a military application. And now I have a computer in front of me with information for the podcast. And I'm recording this on a computer that fits inside of my pocket. I'm recording it on my, my phone. Um, so there's been crazy advances that you probably could not have predicted even 50 years ago, let alone 70 years ago when uh, computing was just getting started. But on the other hand, 70 years ago, you also had crazy advances like nuclear bombs, and you don't see those in everybody's house. So the question is, which is this more like? Is this something that's going to be in everybody's house because everyone has a use for it? Or is this going to be limited to just military governments and large companies? That I don't know. Um, if I had to put money on one, I would say this is more general purpose than, say, a nuclear bomb. And if not, you know, having a com quantum computer in your house, at some point you'll probably have access to a quantum computer via the Internet. We already do have that, but, you know, talking about quantum computers that can factor RSA 2048, I, I would say that will probably happen at least during my lifetime. And hopefully I've got a ways to go. <laughs> So the question now becomes, if in my lifetime I'm going to have to worry about anyone who has access to the internet being able to crack the RSA 2048 encryption, pretty much any encryption I throw at what I want, how, how can we protect against all that? How can we protect against quantum attacks on cryptography? And finally we hit the good stuff. So this is where it really gets complicated and interesting. So we're going to start with something less complicated and interesting. Well, less complicated, I would say, about the same level of interesting. So we talked about how Bitcoin is vulnerable. So now we have to talk for the completeness sake about quantum-safe cryptography, uh, cryptocurrencies. My favorite currently is IOTA. It's not really quantum-safe in the sense that the encryption cannot be cracked with a quantum computer, but rather it doesn't really matter if the encryption is cracked. It's an interesting... It's, it's, it's an interesting philosophy. Um, the encryption uses a one-time key rather than just a single address per person, which means that because it's a new random key generated every time, a new IOTA address, the, the chance of, uh, sorry, if they crack that key, all they have is that address, uh, that specific address, and not your overall access to your account. The other thing is each time you want to put your own transaction on the IOTA ledger, you have to do a small proof of work and confirm two existing transactions. This leads to a couple things. First of all, it means that it's basically infinitely scalable, right? Because the more people you have, if each, the more people you have making transactions, if each transaction has to confirm two others, the wait time decreases for each person on the, the ledger rather than with Bitcoin, where it's a single, it's a it's a set pool of miners that are 
working on confirming these transactions, adding them to the ledger, where the transaction time gets longer and longer. Um, the other thing is because it's a smaller hash, it means that there's a proportional, proportionally smaller speed up for quantum computers over classical computers. You have, you know, um, because if if a if a quantum computer can do it in O of log n, and a classical computer can do it in O of n squared, there's you know actually at the very bottom there's a point where those overlap, um, but at the at the low end the the proportional difference the you could even look at the geometric distance on a graph of log of n and n squared is is much smaller than if you had much larger keys. Um, where was I? Ah, yes. So all of this combines to mean that if you want to double spend IOTA reliably, you don't need a computer faster than 50% of all of the other computers combined, but rather all of the other computers combined. Does this make it entirely quantum proof? No. Of course not. There's basically nothing you can say forever and for always this will be entirely 100% quantum resistant. But it is more quantum resistant than other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Another, another cryptocurrency that looks promising is called the quantum resistant ledger. It's essentially the same as blockchain, where you've got miners, users, cryptography-based proof of work. The difference is that it uses a quantum resistant uh, encryption scheme instead of uh, in, uh, elliptic curve uh, algorithm, which can be cracked with shores. Um, Bitcoin, yeah, I should I should back up. Bitcoin does use an, <coughs> an elliptic curve um, encryption scheme. And finally, Ethereum has said that they could switch to a quantum resistant encryption scheme. It's currently not quantum resistant, but the core devs have said they are looking to have it be quantum resistant in the next three to five years, which should be plenty of time before we are able to do any big factoring on quantum computers. Now, now we're done with the fun stuff and the uh, cryptocurrencies. Got to get into the nitty gritty um, of actual quantum safe encryption schemes. So there, there already are quantum safe encrypt, or rather quantum resistant encryption schemes out there. Um, the, I've got a list of a couple, um, but I, I should say there are you know. Some of these have not been studied extensively. I say quantum resistant and not quantum safe because we don't really know what the future brings. It's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So that being said, let's, let's, ju let's just jump into it. So the first thing is lattice-based cryptography. Um, if I'm being entirely honest, I didn't quite understand how all of this works other than it uses specific properties of mathematical lattices that are easy to compute in one direction but hard in the other. Same thing we've been talking about with all of cryptography. Um, it makes a great replacement for a Diffie-Hellman key exchange, which if you're a cryptography nerd, you know what that is. <coughs> if you're not a cryptography nerd, don't worry about it. The next thing is code-based cryptography. This was interesting because I hadn't heard of anything you know, like this. Um, whereas lattice-based cryptography, factoring large numbers, elliptic curve calculations, those are all mathematical, um, I guess, like pure math. But this is this uses error-correcting codes, 
which is, again, it, it's mathematical, but it's, um, it seems closer to computer science than other cryptography does. Anyhow, um, the, original, the original code based cryptography uses random GAPA codes, uh, which are binary codes generated in a way I don't understand, but that add redundancy to the information you want to send so you can add errors to it and someone else can remove those errors to get the original message. Next thing that I want to talk about, mainly because I really like the name, is super singular elliptic curve isogeny cryptography. Again, I don't understand this one very much either. Um, I would love if someone knows a resources to explain these more complicated encryption um, terms and ideas. Let me know. That would be awesome. But it, uh, so this super singular elliptic curve isogeny cryptography appears to be a quantum resistant, basically drop in replacement for Diffie Hellman key exchange, like lattice based cryptography, um, but even, even more similar. This one's really cool because the size of the keys is relatively small. Whereas with code based cryptography, the keys can be hundreds of thousands of bits long. Super singular isogeny uh, Diffie Hellman key exchange, or S I D H K X, needs only 2,866 bits to have 128 bit security against quantum attacks, which is, you know, not bad. And the last one, uh, last specific type of quantum safe or quantum resistant encryption scheme is symmetric key quantum resistance. This one I did understand because basically you just keep doing what we're doing right now with RSA, Diffie-Hellman, and all of the encryption schemes that we're using right now, but we just throw more bits at the problem. We make the keys bigger, we make the problems harder. And we go, yeah, quantum computers probably can't do that in the future because they've got to be error corrected and it's hard to get the, get the level of error rates down and get the coherence times long enough. So don't worry about it. Just throw more bits at the problem, which I thought very, very practical engineer type solution. Uh, last thing uh, in the section of we already have some existing quantum safe encryption. There's a program, a project on GitHub and on the web called Open Quantum Safe. It's a project to bring quantum resistant cryptography into the mainstream. And you know, they put it so much better than I ever could, so I'm just going to read off of Open Quantum Safe's website. Alright, here we go. The goal of the Open Quantum Safe, or OQS, project is to support the development and prototyping of quantum-resistant cryptography. OQS is intended for prototyping and evaluating quantum-resistant cryptography. Security of proposed quantum-resistant algorithms may rapidly change as research advances and may ultimately be completely insecure against either classical or quantum computers. <clears throat> I really like how honest they are there that, yeah, we think these are pretty safe, but who knows what the future holds. And another cool thing is just how accessible all of these advancements are. There are wrappers for C++, C Sharp, and Python through OQS, and an outside vendor has created a Go wrapper. Um, pretty much whatever language you're into, there's something there's something for you. I mean, I know there are a lot of other languages, but, you know, C++, C Sharp, and Python covers a large, large section of the market. So if you're interested in making your 
program Quantum Resistant or want to help develop this, I have a link to the OQS homepage and their GitHub in the show notes. Make sure you go check those out. Give them some support. That would be awesome. So next question is, all of these quantum safe encryption schemes work or uh yeah they they work for encryption at least as far as we can tell they exist people know about them there's a whole open source github repo with implementations of these open source encryption these quantum open source quantum resistant encryption schemes why in the world aren't we using them already why aren't they already mainstream so the first question there is maybe that's not the right mindset to look at. We've got to look at it from a historical perspective of what reason have we had to use them in the past? Things like RSA and Diffie-Hellman Key Exchange work great while being simpler and more intuitive. You saw me, I could explain RSA and uh, logarithm and a little bit of elliptic curve, but I struggled with all of the quantum computing. And that's, that's a very important thing to consider that programmers like intuitive concepts so yeah they work great they've been working fine since the dawn of the computing age and we haven't had quantum computers you know having quantum computers with more than two qubits has been a very recent development so using the more complex algorithms didn't make a lot of sense at the time a lot of these ideas for cryptography are new is another thing they haven't been put through the ringer so to speak as much as the battle test algorithms we have been using, again, since the start of the computing age. Finally, very few people around the world know just how important it is that their information be properly encrypted. You know, you've seen an uptick. If you listen to podcasts at all and you're listening to this, so I'm assuming you do, you've heard NordVPN, TunnelBear, all of those different places advertising, and it's just now becoming more mainstream to have good encryption, even if you are just sort of a random Joe. Um, and, you know, just few, you know, few people understand how important it is that their information be properly encrypted, and even fewer people understand the basics of how quantum computers could change all of that encryption. So, you know, that's part of what I want to do with this podcast. I want to get it out to people. The you know, quantum computers are coming. They're here in a very basic sense, and we need to be ready for when they become stronger, more powerful, more efficient. So if there's one thing I want you to take away from all of this, it's keep an eye out. And if you have the opportunity to start encrypting your data with quantum-resistant algorithms, do that. I'll say it again, I've said it a hundred times before, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. But that being said, it's always better safe than sorry. All right, there are no previous episode corrections to talk about in this episode. That's awesome. It's definitely because I know everything there is to know about quantum computing and not because people just haven't found any of my myriad mistakes or pointed them out to me. So... I want to keep doing this. I want to keep saying there aren't any previous episode corrections. If you found an error in this episode or would just like to add something to the topic of quantum safe cryptography, reach out to me on Twitter or by sending me a voice message on Anchor. On Twitter, you can find me at one Ethan Hansen. 
on Anchor. If you look up quantum computing now, Anchor should be the first thing that comes up on your search engine of choice. Bing, DuckDuckGo, Yahoo, whatever floats your boat. I also didn't have any listener questions from the previous episode, so I'm just going to fill this space with some questions for you, the listeners. Do you know of any mainstream, semi-mainstream, or even obscure applications that actually use quantum-resistant encryption? Can you explain to me how some of the more complex quantum-resistant encryption schemes work? No, seriously, please explain like I'm five. And, you know, to answer these questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter, or you can email me at oneethanheads@protonmail.com, or you can send me an anger voice message. If you're going to email me, email me from another ProtonMail account, or it won't be E2E encrypted. It's not quantum safe encrypted, but it's better than nothing. And finally, some further resources if you want to dive deeper. Uh, First thing I would do is look at the links in the description. You can see the sources I used while researching this episode. I also put out a Twitter poll to find out what people were interested in learning about, and quantum safe encryption was the winner. It was a a tie. I went with quantum safe encryption. If you want to say in the next topic I cover, be sure to follow me on Twitter at OneEthanHanson and respond to the next poll. If you would like to contribute to the push to make the internet quantum safe, I know I said it already, I'll say it again, check out the Open Quantum Safe project. There's a link in the description to both their home website and their GitHub, or you can just, you know, duck, duck, go, Open Quantum Safe. Quantum Computing Now is produced in partnership with thequantumdaily.com. The Quantum Daily aims to cut through the technical jargon and the overhyped fluff pieces to deliver quality, comprehensible content about quantum computing. If you enjoy this podcast and would also like text resources, be sure to check out thequantumdaily.com, which I have linked to in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I'll have another episode out when I get to it.